This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Lane Garrison, one of the stars and screenwriters of the film 12 Mighty Orphans. We'll talk about why this film may be the perfect metaphor for America's return from the pandemic, even though some critics have accused it of containing toxic masculinity. And I'll discuss what I've been doing the last two months. And now, The Nexus. Lane Garrison is an actor, writer, and producer who's been in the entertainment industry for 20 years. He rose to fame as Tweener, the experienced thief who got locked up for, among other things, stealing a highly valuable Honus Wagner baseball card. Lane has appeared in remakes of Bonnie and Clyde and Roots, starred in the motion picture The Iron Orchard, and was a particularly nasty meth dealer in the Red Hot series Yellowstone. Now he is the co-writer, producer, and one of the stars of the summer movie 12 Mighty Orphans, out in theaters right now and on services like Fandango. Lane Garrison, welcome to the Nexus. Hey, buddy. How are you? That was a heck of an intro. I, I, I liked it a lot. It made me uh, reflect on those 20 years and everything in between. It was, um, I, I, what did you say about Yellowstone? That was a great description. Was a particularly nasty meth dealer in the Red Hot series <laughs> Yellowstone. I mean, you were, fr- you were legitimately frightening in that show, and that's, that's a testament yeah. to your uh, acting. Yeah, thanks, Mike. You know what's funny? When I was doing that, um, I shaved my head and <laughs> I put pot marks on my face and I dirtied my teeth and I FaceTimed my wife to say hi to my daughter and my daughter screamed <laughs> and started crying. And my wife said, you're not to FaceTime us again until you're done shooting this. And um, so it, it was one of those roles that was definitely memorable and, and fun to fun to play it was not fun going out in public looking like that um nor was my character and roots i feel like i keep choosing these roles where it's just like i might as well isolate myself well we will get to that a little bit more in a minute but um 12 mighty orphans is the story of an orphanage in 1930s texas that fielded a football team with only 12 members with every member having to play offense and defense, and the facility itself was dirt poor, so they had next to no resources. It's a Depression-era tale of building yourself up from nothing, no parents, no money, and a nation that had literally crashed. Could this be a metaphor for America in 2021, Lane? Absolutely. Um, You know, and I hate to say it like that, but, you know, one of the things that I told our director, Ty Roberts, and and my co-writer, when we did the movie, we were one of the last films to be shot before the pandemic shut down the world and the movie business included. And we sat on a shelf for all of 2020. I mean, we were in the editing room and we were doing remote um, composing with Mark Orton and getting music assembled, but we really didn't know if movie theaters would open back up, what's going to happen to this film. And, you know, as fate would have it, uh, I feel personally, what a timely movie for people to go see as they're trying to rebuild their lives and pick themselves up again. You know, 
the Great Depression was one of the saddest, most troubling times in our history, as we all know. And this easily compares to that. I mean, so many people lost their lives, their jobs, their livelihood. And 12 Mighty Orphans teaches that lesson that these boys taught the nation that was hurting at that time. And that was to believe in yourself, believe in each other, believe in the impossible, and you can overcome all obstacles. And, and like you mentioned, these boys had no parents. They had no money. In fact, when they started the football program, they had no shoes. They had no cleats. They had no pads, no helmets. They had nothing. And by the way, orphans at the time were, were perceived to be almost like convicts. In fact, a lot of times they were called convicts. So they were outcasts and shunned. So the fact that these boys were able to do what they did by self-belief and by finding self-worth to inspire the nation all the way up to President Roosevelt. Um, President Roosevelt would hang a 12 banner from the White House every week when they played. <laughs> and I think it's a, a remarkable lesson for all of us. And I'm, I really feel like fate had its hand in this film since day one. And, and it's just the perfect time to release this movie. And the, the response, I have never in my 20 years of doing this, had my phone blow up more with a hundred plus texts a day from people seeing the film saying, I took my grandparents, I took my grandkids, children, young and old, and walking out of the theater in tears and inspired and feeling like I can better myself, I can better my neighbor. And it, it gives that message. You've seen it without being like hokey. It really feels like, um, cinema verite it feels like a, a just a really well done film that leaves you thinking and it's thought-provoking and empowering and I, my favorite thing about the whole movie is the amount of friends that i played football with growing up and these are big tough guys that that call me saying you punk you made me sob in front of my children, you know, and, and, and I have to laugh, but I also love that because it, that's the power of this movie. And it really, it, you know, football was just a vehicle. This is not a football movie. Football was just the tool that Rusty Russell used to teach these valuable lessons um, to the orphans. And um, I'm just, I'm so proud of this movie and, I feel like my own journey in life, I don't know if you know this art, but um, I lost both my parents when I was young. And as I mentioned, grew up in Texas. So football was my theater. You know, Friday Night Lights, that was the biggest stage in Texas. And I thought it was going to go on and I had some college scholarship offers and I thought it was going to go on and play ball. And, you know, my dream was to make it in the NFL, even though it was a 5'9". Uh, wide receiver which that was unheard of wow. at the time but but really what sucked me into the movie business my i went with my football team on a dare to try out for the high school musical which was a chorus line <clears throat> oh geez and i did so i did so well that the theater teacher said um I, you're not getting the lead of this play because you can't dance but you are coming into the theater program. And so I had, I, I lived this dual life of being, you know, a big wig on the football team and also a uh, member of the theater and the drama department. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, it was really by this woman named Lynn Zednick that, that kind of started my career. I, I had to do a monologue in class and I busted a chair up against a chalkboard and she said, I need to see you after class. I thought I was being thrown out of there. And she said, I think that you could do this professionally. Hmm. And, and that was it for me. It was, I'm not going to go play college ball and I'm going to move to LA and I'm going to, I'm going to go make movies. Little did I know how hard that would be, but, um, you know, here, here we are 20 years later. Well, yeah, five nine wide receiver. That's that's a you got to be <laughs> pretty wide or something to you know. I yeah. was a five foot seven and a half running back, which is a little bit more normal, I think. But even still, yeah. I was too yeah. short for for any kind of major football. But um, to so that sets the stage for all of the the motivation and such. But how did you particularly? get involved with this movie yeah uh not to bore you but i'll kind of fill you in on the backstory so like you mentioned before i did the iron orchard as the lead actor and ty robert um who directed 12 mighty orphans also directed the iron orchard and um houston hill who produced both movies um they're they're also texas-based guys we shot that film in west texas and at the time, I was living in L.A., and when I read that script, I flew myself to Austin to meet with Ty, and I begged him. I knew he was like trying to get a McConaughey and these major, major stars, but I just told him, I have to play this role. I will give 110%. I will do whatever it takes, help you raise money, whatever. And really, after shooting the film, we just had such a great working relationship and such a shorthand. Ty is just a phenomenal director, very easy to work with in Houston as a producer. We just all three of us had a connection. So when Houston um, called me and he said, would you read, read this book, 12 Mighty Orphans? And I had never heard about it, which is crazy because I grew up in Dallas and uh, this was a true story and I'd never heard about it, even though it was a best-selling book. I read it and I immediately called him when I was done and said, this is remarkable. This story is insane. This is crazy and inspiring and everything that, you know, I said the movie is. He said, well, how would you feel about writing it? And I'm not joking. Within 48 hours, Ty and I had an office, which was really a guest, a room in a guest house in the back of Barton Springs. And we started um, digesting the book and breaking it down, and that's how that's how I got involved. And and now Ty and Houston and I, you know, have kind of partnered up, and we're making another one, and you know, just plan on keep telling these great stories. Hmm. Well, obviously there were there are some marvelous actors in Twelve Mighty Orphans, including Luke Wilson and Martin Sheen, and. I was most surprised to see Robert Duvall there. Um, did you spend time with Duvall at all? I did. In fact, um, I, w- I was a little scared uh, <laughs> of him at first, because not just because he's such a legend, but because I also, you know, I just know what that's like when in being around it and being around Hollywood and some of these bigger stars that they just get bombarded. So much so that it's like they really like their own space. So I was a little 
timid and she couldn't have been nicer to me. Um, and in fact, you know, one highlight that I'll take away from this, this film and something that I'm really proud of is that, um, his wife and uh, a man who helps him like their driver and their assistant. Um, I saw him the night, the morning after the premiere and they, um, both pulled me aside and said, we just wanted you to know that Bobby went on and on about your performance last night. And mm. he wanted you to know that in his words, kid, you got it. And I was like, I, had, I basically died and went to heaven. I was like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to do anything else. But I mean, it was great to have him and Martin Sheen. One of the moments for me was, um, Mike DeLuca, who, we all know, you know, he's a three-time Oscar-nominated big wig producer, was also on 12 Mighty Orphans. When Duvall and Martin Sheen were doing a scene together, he looked over at me and he said, can you believe that you wrote something that is reuniting Duvall and Martin Sheen for the first time since Apocalypse Now? That's right. These two titans. And I hadn't thought about it yet, and it sort of dawned on me. And, you know, it was another pinch-myself-again moment um they came full circle but everybody in our cast is just phenomenal vanessa shaw wayne knight um even ron white is the sheriff the boys nine or eight out of the 12 are local casting you know kids we found around the fort worth area that just knocked it out of the park and um i think for me and i've told this to luke wilson to his face that this is the best role he has ever done to date and he agrees with me i mean he he knows it is because we're not used to seeing luke in that light not in at that all. light we're, no we're used to seeing him as the dry witted funny guy and he's very good at it uh, but we've never seen this full transformation from character to clothing to posture to the way he walked and talked and movement i mean it really was an award worthy performance and um I hope when it's all said and done, you know, he gets some accolades and some recognition for it. But I'm just, I'm through the moon with the, uh, with the movie and the way it turned out and the response from people. Exactly. Well, let's, let's talk about the themes in the movie, determination, resilience, education. Was there a conscious effort to make this, for lack of a better term, a values-based film? Well. I'll tell you it, a couple things happened with this and you know, you, you can read the book and you do, you get like a light dusting of who Rusty Russell was, but his grandson, Russ Morton, who's still alive and lives in Fort Worth, um, sitting down with him and Luke and myself and Ty to learn truly who this man was and his wife Juanita Russell and what they did for not just the boys but also the girls of that orphanage it we had to go with those things because that's who that man was I mean I can't tell you how many lifetimes I would need to live to accomplish what this man did and do it selflessly so Rusty Russell for the people that haven't seen the film or don't know him this was an orphan, an orphaned uh, young boy who went to World War I, who was wounded. Not only he was wounded as a medic, so he was saving other people's lives, 
wounded, blinded, came back home, overcame blindness, became an All-American tight end football player and an All-American, I believe, uh, shooting guard in basketball in college. Then went on to coach a successful program down at Temple and was doing very well. You know, they, they had everything they needed, him and his wife, Juanita. And he left all of that and every dime there to go help orphans who were in need and had nothing. And, you know, from the orphanage, he was there for 16 years. And he really stressed education before you even hit the field, which you see that in the in the movie um and you know he went on from the orphanage to coach collegiate football and just his accolades and who he was as a man it it was hard to not um have those themes when you're dealing with a central protagonist that was as great as this man and obviously rusty russell was played by luke wilson just so everyone is aware of that um I've seen a lot of great reviews, um, solid reviews of it. I've also seen some backlash to the film, however. Some yeah. have said some have said this espouses toxic masculinity or doesn't feature yeah. enough women in the film. What do you say to that? Yeah, so I mean, you know, this is a very touchy subject and something I've been very vocal and passionate about. Because you look at something like a Rotten Tomatoes and you have a 97% audience approval. And I get the message and everyone in our cast and our directors and, you know, we've been to enough screenings now and Q&As to see the response. And there's such a disconnect between the audience and the critic. And the problem with that is some of these critics, they wield such power that when they write something, it turns away thousands and people from from going out and venturing out to see a film because the critic wants to lambast it i mean like you said uh there's been some great reviews from variety and deadline and hollywood reporter and some of some of the really big ones get it but there's also been some people that i call it the quote-unquote woke (laughs) Mm -hmm. as we we keep hearing that word and You know, and I think really it's some of these critics that that just bash things to bash it to try to look cool or make a name for themselves. And, you know, we've got to remember this is a true story during 1938, during the Great Depression, when times were were tough, um, they were a lot different and women were treated different and the way men spoke was different, good, bad and indifferent, you know. So we're still trying to be truthful at the same time, you know, bring the story to, to life. And um, I just, I personally don't see masculinity in it. And um, it's a shame that, that, that some have, that's just a word that keeps being regurgitated or tropes. Here's another sports movie with the standard tropes. And that's something else I get worked up about because, of course, we've seen things in sports films because there's always going to be players. There's always going to be teams. There's always going to be that one coach or that one player. And there's always going to be a winner or loser. So those are hard tropes to get around. But I feel like we found a different way to tell the story with, um, you know, a different edge leaving you feeling different than you feel in most. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and along those lines, it's it's and the movie obviously has a classic feel to it right from the beginning. I thought of Rudy at times, remember the Titans in some spots, even Oliver Twist. And yet, of course, I thought of it in a also, as you're saying, a very original way, something that hasn't been done before. Do you think some in the culture don't want those movies to be made anymore because they aren't politically correct? Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'm I'm a very uh, free speaker <laughs> on on all subjects. I want to avoid it. I I do, and I feel like you know, I feel where my industry is and and where the business is. It's like I don't care where you're from, what your background, your sexual orientation, any of of that. If you've got a remarkable story to tell tell it and do it well make make a great movie and i feel like i grew up with films like that where you could just tell stories and it didn't have to be politically correct or it didn't have to have some uh nefarious agenda to get critics to respond i just feel like you know it, I can't tell you the amount of messages I've gotten from people saying, finally, this is the kind of movie that we've been waiting for. You know, we've been waiting. Why don't they make these kind of movies anymore? And that's over and over again. And I think people are craving it. And so hopefully our film will be kind of a stepping stone and, and help other people that want to get their movies made that might not have a political agenda to do so. But I just feel like it, it's hard. Um, you know, let people be storytellers and, and tell their stories um, without without bashing it because it's not polit- politically correct or, you know, we can all learn something from each other. And, um, yeah. you know, one, one thing that's been really cool with 12 Mighty Orphans that surprised Sony and the rest of the studios is the amount of 55 and over demographic going to see it going to see a pg-13 movie they can't figure that out Hmm. and the reason is 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 that not everybody in that audience two things is craving needs needs it to be rated r for it to be a good movie and and the other thing is the the message of the film and and what it's about and they are the ones spreading the word of mouth it's not a bunch of young teenagers out there being like you gotta go see this movie it's so cool really the 55 and older crowd they're the ones that carry the word of mouth um for movies that and and movies that can stay in the theater for a long time well it seems to me that returning to basics and education and developing fundamental skills is what this country may need more than making everyone feel good only. Certainly you want to build Ah. self-esteem, but you also need to build academic and athletic discipline as well. Uh, To me, 12 Mighty Orphans embodied these themes, and that's part of why it was attractive to me. Yeah, I mean, it was attractive to me too, because those are themes that I live by. And, you know, um, like I said before, losing both my parents, I moved to LA with $400 to my name and I knew one person and who basically told me I was talentless and that I could be his assistant's assistant. <laughs> so, you know, I, and it was a great lesson for me that I had to like the 12 my orphans believe in myself and work hard and work harder than the next guy that knew Spielberg and 
tight connections and all these other things. And I think, you know, that message, and I've, I've gotten to show this film to a bunch of youth and kids that are 14, 15, all the way seniors in high school. And what I tell them all, and I say, I'm going to, like you were just talking about not being politically correct. I say, this is a movie that'll teach you one thing that there are no participation trophies in life. <laughs> You've got to roll up your sleeves, educate yourself and go fight for what you want and believe in yourself. Don't listen to the naysayers. And, you know, we do need to get back to that where we educate, educate first and not everybody, everything's okay. You know, it's okay to lose a game. It's okay to fail if we learn from it and grow and pick ourselves back up and, and keep striving to be better. And those themes, you know, um, I guess I'm getting old now, the, the way I talk, I probably wouldn't have spoken this way when I was about 19 years old, but, um, it's a sign of, of me getting older. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about you as an actor. Uh, you've carved out a niche, as a villain in a lot of roles now and 12 mighty orphans, you play Luther, the dastardly coach of the rival polytechnic high school who works to thwart our heroes on their path to glory is playing villains, a coincidence or a conscious decision at all. My wife says quit being the a-hole. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she says, no, it, it's funny with 12 mighty orphans. Um, the Harry did, the iron orchard with me and so when she said what are we going to do with for luther and i said adolf hitler with a haircut and she laughed and i said no seriously adolf hitler i want people to see him on screen and just just look know he's evil and menacing and just they hate him and so we did that and of course i walked out of the trailer and my wife saw my haircut and turned around and walked away because <laughs> um, it was like he's back at it again I think for me, honestly, wh what it is, is it, it's not even finding the niche. It's just for me, I truly am a nice guy that will give you the shirt off my back and such a loving guy that it's so far removed from who I am. To me, it's so fun to do. I just, I just relish in the joy of it, knowing that this is on screen and um, I could never be like that in real life, but, um, the iron horse is a little bit different, you know, I'm the leading man in that. And I, yes, there's moments like that, but I, I kind of find redemption in the end, but yeah, I think, um, if my wife had it her way, I did like a nice comedy next where I'm just the joyful, good guy. <laughs> well, Walk me through the process of screenwriting. I mean, did you put together a draft yourself first or, and others added to it or edited it, or did you write certain sections and your collaborators worked on others? Yeah, no. So Ty and I, um, there's three screenwriters, uh, Ty, I, and another guy who I won't even mention, even though he's a good guy. Um, there's some politics they go in with the writer's guild that I do not agree with, um, which is why there was a third name added on there. And it, it just, it still behooves me how, how it all went down. But Ty and I wrote every single word of that film together in that little eight by 12 room that if anybody saw what the room looked like from post-its on the wall 
the poster board to the amount of coffee cups and trash, they would think we were serial killers. <laughs> um, breaking down the book and breaking down scene by scene, we literally went over every line together. And the great thing about you know our working relationship and me being an actor is I could get up in front of him and give like Luke Wilson's speech um, that he gives to the boys in the towels. And I could give him that emotion and I could show him how it would play out and vice versa and pitch him things and flip it. It, it was just a really great working process. And um, so for that, we wrote, uh, that was all Ty and I, and, um, you know, dissecting Jim Dent's book and, and kind of finding the through lines and the narrative that were in that. But I started screenwriting not by choice. I wanted to be an actor and solely an actor. But like I said before, I moved to LA and the one person I know who I called said, you have no talent, kid. Um, and literally, you can be my assistant's assistant. And so I thought, how am I ever going to break into this business as an actor? I don't know anybody. My last name's not famous. And at the time, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon had just won best uh, screenplay for Google Hunting. And I, it dawned on me. I'm like, they're actors. They wrote a movie. I could do the same thing. And so I set out and wrote my first film. And at 21, um, got optioned. And then I got a studio deal at MGM as a screenwriter and got signed by this really big lit agent who brought me in his office and he said, okay, what, what's kind of like the five-year plan? What projects do you want to write and everything? And I, I told him, uh, I just want to act. And he goes, <laughs> what? What are you talking about? <laughs> I signed you as a writer, not an actor. And I said, I, I know, but I, I just want to act, sir. That's why I wrote. And he goes, well, you're too good of a writer to not write. And he goes, actors are lazy. He hated actors. And he goes, so you'll act in one, then you write one. And then you act in one, you write one. And I've stayed true to that my, my whole career. Anytime hmm. I'm done doing a film, I immediately start writing one. And, um, and yeah, I, I love it. I love it. It's, um, you know, it, it's, I'm writing one right now that's another true story based out of Fort Worth, um, called You Gotta Believe and with Ty in Houston and us producing. And so I'm on page. 110 i've got like three more pages to go and i'll be done well does it is it a secret about what that's about in, in a thumbnail no story? yeah no not at all um very very much similar to 12 mighty orphans which is how i got brought on brought in to the story um a group of little leaguers in 2002 um you know same thing degenerate <laughs> these 12 year old kids that didn't have a business winning a single game, went all the way to the Little League World Series, and they had the longest game in Little League World Series history. But they did it because these kids um, got behind one of the players' dads who was dying of terminal cancer and dedicated the season to him. And just through miracles and motivation, they made the unthinkable happen. And it made national news and it was on the cover of every paper. And, um, they, <laughs> the ending is they lost the game and the man died shortly after, but he should have died way before they even made it. It was one of their dreams. So it's another, um, tearjerker, um, but another inspiring feel good. Um, I just really like that 
that storytelling for me. Um, and 12 Mighty Orphans has definitely given me that motivation. Like, hey, you can do a great story and leave an audience feeling empowered and moved. And um, it doesn't all have to be dark and gloomy for you to consider yourself an artist. Right. Of course. Um, and, you know, with 12 Mighty Orphans, you were also we touched upon it a little bit but you were also a producer on this movie and yeah. my guess is a lot of our listeners and people in general don't know what the producer does i mean what do you do in that yeah so i'll give all credit to you know, the real credit should go to houston hill who's my good friend a producing partner um he's the one who got the rights to 12 by orphans the book He's the one that puts the pieces together. But the producer and the main producer, for instance, if 12 Body Orphans somehow won Best Picture, um, the producer is the one that accepts the Oscar. And the reason the producer accepts it, not the director, is because the producer is the one who puts all the pieces together. He cobbles the financing together. He gets the actors he chooses the right director for the project. So he's putting all the pieces together. And really, once those pieces are together in a movie shooting for the people that have never been on set or never been around movie business, what happens when a movie's all set in motion is there's about 4,000 fires that happen. And what I mean by fires is I mean problems, mm. issues. Camera breaks down. An actress breaks down. Won't come out of her trailer. Um, the food doesn't show up. The set is completely wrong. The wardrobe's off. We can't get, I mean, it's a problem after problem. And what happens is it falls into the producer's laps to put out these fires and to make sure the production is cohesive and stays together and you get everything shot that you need shot in a timely manner. And so I was part of that producing team from day one. Um, and helping put out fires, um, helping with actors. I helped raise money for the movie. And, um, you know, I, I, I wore many, many hats on this one just because I believed in it so much. Hmm. That's good. I mean, I, that is helpful actually to think about it because I don't think so I've ever really, really quickly. The other thing that everybody asked me, especially in my family, they're like, what's an exec producer and a producer and right. this producer and that producer. So an executive producer, what that truly means is that is the guy or the guys or the gals writing the check. They're the people that are like, I like this project. Here's a million bucks or here's two million dollars. So your executive producers, your people that with just the producer and co-producer credit, those are your people doing your, your labor and your work and putting all the pieces together and putting the fires out. So that's the difference. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, especially in TV, it's always, that's uh, not something necessarily to get onto, but they always have these co-executive producers. I'm always fascinated how, how many ways you can break down. There's an executive producer, a co-executive producer, right? Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> Basically the executive producer wrote a bigger check than the co-executive producer. <laughs> okay. That's good. Yeah, I am learning a, a lot about the business at this moment. Um, how stepping back a little bit, I mean, you, you said it sort of when I introduced you that you 
my introduction made you think about your your 20 years in the business. I mean, how would you assess how your career has gone so far? Wow. Um, I would say it's, it's been a roller coaster. And I would say that, you know, I'm not one that likes to dwell in the past. I like to learn from the mistakes and, and move on move forward and not, you know, dwell on, you know, past choices and um, especially career wise. But I would say that I am very, very, very blessed. And the reason I say that, sure, there's huge movies I've lost out on or money that I, I could have earned that I, I wish I did differently. But really, and I'm saying this because I, grew up with guys I lived with six actors in a two-bedroom apartment when I first lived there so I've, I've watched the struggle of so many of my friends and so many people who have had to leave that business that pursued it and wanted to make it a career the fact that I can pay my bills and take care of my family doing what I love means um I feel like the luckiest guy in the world because I get to do what I love. So I feel very blessed and I feel like I'm right where God intended me to be and telling the stories that I'm supposed to be telling. So yeah, that's, that's my long, short answer. <laughs> I guess I guess if I had one, one huge regret back in the day would have been signing my contract for prison break. So they wouldn't kill me. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, I, this is a lesson for anybody young out there listening that, um, that is going to go pursue this. Um, don't let your ego or your head or an agent or manager, or anybody else tell you, kid, you're a movie star. You don't need to sign any of these documents and you're doing movies with Mark Wahlberg. And that's basically what they said to me, um, when I was offered a regular contract on prison break after year two. And, I listened to an agent said, you're doing movies with Mark Wahlberg. We got you on the same trajectory. Don't sign it. They'll keep you on. And the next week I showed up on set and I read, read the script and said, tweener, shot, dead, killed, wow. murdered. And I'm wrong. What? Oh. And I ran in there and they said, you didn't sign your contract. And the studio is very upset. So uh, goodbye. So uh, oh. that was that, that was definitely a uh, lesson learned. And um Obviously, the show went on for another five seasons. So, so they killed um, you off because you didn't sign your contract. They killed me off because <laughs> yep, I didn't sign my contract. Oh, gee, and what a good character Wiener <laughs> was. Uh, I, you know, I know. Despite what happened with Avocado, I think it was a great character. So, <laughs> don't tell that to my wife. She always talks <laughs> about. Um, I got him back. It said, you know, that was one of my favorite episodes where I read the script and it said, for those of you who don't know, he's Art's referring to the fact that I was raped on yes. prison break by, by a behemoth man yes. who was the grossest human being alive. God bless him. He was like six, nine and 400 pounds hairy oh. and did not bathe. But, um, the next week in the next episode, um, I got a razor blade and, um, you know, I got back at him. So yes. The funniest thing about that in the script, it said tweener makes guacamole. 
I laughed so hard when I read that. <laughs> yeah, well, some things just need to be seen on screen, so we don't need to yeah. go exactly as yeah, to okay. what Tweener did in that moment. But um, yes, he got avocado got his comeuppance. He got he got uh, devoured. Let's just say. But um, <laughs> so, <laughs> what is next for Lane Garrison? So what's next is um, I'm going to go inside and change a couple diapers <laughs> and uh, feed the babies, relieve my wife. No, for real, I am going to do that and then get back to writing. Um, as I said, you got to believe I'm going to finish that script and get it turned in. And then this week we're actually screening um, 12 Mighty Orphans for uh, the governor's office in Texas and all the legislators here. Um, so that they can see it and just see the importance of the, the film for the history, you know, of Texas and, and what happened here. And, and then after I'm done with that, I've got 12 Mighty Orphans. I wrote the pilot, um, to create it into a TV show. Cause like I said, he was there for 16 years and the backstory alone of what some of these boys and girls went through is just, it's endless. It's endless. And so we really want to turn that into a series. Um, Ty Houston and I, uh, my co-creators on that. And um, so I'll be working with those guys on a number of projects and just figuring it out until my phone rings and uh, they call me for a Yellowstone spinoff to be not some meth dealer, but some, <laughs> I don't know, some wicked cowboy. Um, that would so, be good. Yeah, they're going to do that here. In fact, my friend is Taylor Sheridan, the creator of that show, and um, a phenomenal writer as well. And when I did Millstone, I told him, please, please don't kill me off. This will be like my 19th on-screen death. Like, this show is a number one hit. This is great. Um, Don't kill me off. I can redeem myself. He goes, redeem yourself? Have you seen this show? No one's redeemable. (laughs) I mean, not even Kevin Costner. I mean, you can make an argument either way, but I, I'm like, yeah. hey, even that this like, you know, towering cinema legend, Kevin Costner is playing like this total ass. And it's like, uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I'm always fascinated. And yet it's, it's still watchable, which is, which is good. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's an addiction now. <laughs> well, Lane Garrison, the actor, writer, and producer, can be seen right now in 12 Mighty Orphans in theaters across North America. Lane, thank you very much for joining me in the Nexus. Oh, my gosh. What a pleasure, Art. And can I just add one thing? Sure. I just would really encourage people to get out there and um, and make this their first film back um, in the theater post pandemic if they haven't been to the theater yet and i think you'll see um a lot of similarities with life during the great depression and what we just went through and i i think for the most part at least 97 percent of the audience will leave um feeling empowered and feeling giving themselves some new hope um to look forward to in 2021 so i just i really encourage everybody to, to go see the film well, I'll say two things about that now that you brought that up. It's um, I I have been to movies since the pandemic is ending, it seems. 
but I was seated next to three people, a father, a grandfather, and a son who all said, as they got there, they sat down, they said, well, this is the first time I've been in a movie in 16 months. And they all kind of concurred about that. So uh, I think you're right. I think a lot of people are venturing back into the theaters at this moment. And so that that was something to to add to the repertoire. And the other thing is it doesn't spoil the movie or give anything away by saying I really enjoyed the uh, montage at the end of what happened to oh, the the orphans I, and all the people yeah. in the past, really. I'm, I'm so glad you said that. Everybody that stay and watch the credits so you can see what happened to those boys and what they did. And um, I think that, you know, the one without spoiling anything, as we know, my favorite credit, though, is still the the 40 plus boys and girls that went on to become doctors because of Doc. Yes. I think that that, that was so cool. Yeah. Yeah, no. I mean, all of them turned out well. It's 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 incredible. You know, they were they were fighters in World War Two and Korea. Some of them were professional athletes. I mean, it was just a fascinating um, uh, story about how what what obviously was being espoused in the film and what was going on in their lives worked. It actually worked, and it's uh, it's yeah. a great metaphor for what happens today so yeah absolutely well thank you for that too and um yeah you have a, a great day art and, and like i said it was such a pleasure talking to you thank you very much lane and we will be okay, right back welcome back to the nexus after about a two-month hiatus where have we been this whole time I, for the most part, have been enjoying the opening up of this country once again. With work quieting down in May and June, I've taken the time to do a series of road trips in my area, ranging from Charlottesville, Virginia, home of Thomas Jefferson, to Winchester, Virginia, a Civil War hotspot, to Woodstock, Virginia, Hagerstown, Maryland, two nights in Morgantown, West Virginia, home of the Mountaineers, and a visit to the only state-run spa in the nation at Berkeley Springs, West Virginia. Got to go to a Washington Nationals-New York Mets game a couple weeks ago, and I've just returned triumphant from a week at the Jersey Shore in Cape May, New Jersey. Why all the travel? Simply because, for the first time in nearly 18 months, I can. Restrictions are over for the most part, and people are free to come and go as they please. At the beginning of the baseball season in April, Nationals Park was only allowing 5,000 people to sit in the stadium. Now it's at full capacity. New Jersey had been one of the most COVID-restrictive places in the nation, but I didn't have to wear a mask anywhere last week. It feels good to have a full range of movements again. Of course, most of this is because we've reached a high volume of vaccinations nationwide. We didn't meet President Biden's goal of 70% vaccinations by July 4th, but for most states and localities, we're close enough. We still need many more people to get vaccinated, and there's a persistent strain of anti-vaxxers who refuse, dressing their rhetoric up in freedom or choice or lack of trust, but we need to continue whatever is necessary to get these types on board. I didn't realize how lonely and isolated I had been feeling until I started getting out among people again. 
We need to be around people. And as a highly social person myself, being locked away during the pandemic has been more devastating than I thought. This is not to say we should have agreed with the militia types from day one in 2020 who said we should maintain business as usual, no matter what. But now that there are vaccines available, there is really no excuse why we can't reopen polite society. The next frontier is removing the mask mandate from public transportation, especially planes and trains. If there has been one safe space during this pandemic, it's air travel. You don't hear about people contracting coronavirus on airplanes that much. And while that might be due to masks somewhat, I think this lack of virus spread is due to the greatly increased cleaning efforts the airlines have put into place. You don't realize how relatively dirty planes, trains, and buses were in the before times until you hear about how much cleaning has begun during the pandemic. Those cleaning efforts must continue and people should keep washing their hands thoroughly. But the masks have to go. I have a sneaking suspicion that the masks on airplanes could stay permanently. No one at the time of 9-11 thought 20 years later we would still be taking our shoes and belts off as we went through security. But here we are. By now, it's certainly not necessary to do those things, yet airlines in the TSA like regulations. And I could see the reasoning to keep masks going this way. Well, there's always someone with a cold who gets on a plane, so for safety's sake, shouldn't we ensure everyone is protected? Voila, masks on planes forever. Think this is far-fetched? Check back with me in a year and see what the story is. I'd love to be wrong. For now, I'm counting my blessings. After a combination of bad events, I, had, I hadn't gotten to see my mother in person until last week for the first time since my father's funeral exactly a year ago. She was with me in Cape May, New Jersey, all of us vaccinated and with no fear. This is what is essential to a happy life as a human. Community. We've got to make sure we don't allow ruling bodies like the government to come up with ways to restrict our community any longer. Instead, our government should be working with nations worldwide to get them vaccinated in order to make this once a century pandemic a thing of the past. That's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and is produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We'll see you next time and be well. 